FOMO, the fear of missing out. We live in a time where we have more options than we've ever had before, professionally, personally, socially, and we're aware of those options because technology allows us to see what's going on in the world around us, shedding light on all the things we're missing out on. This fear of missing out is the awareness of all the options we have and the understanding that no matter what we do, we'll never be able to enjoy all of them. That new thing, that event, that party, that trip, but what if we're so worried about missing the things of this life that we're missing out on the life God has for us? A life more abundant. He gives us the time, treasure, and talents and calls us to join him. It's up to us to decide if we'll stand up and step out to be part of his story or if we'll continue to live frozen by fear of missing out. You know, if you're here in this room or you're watching the live stream right now, uh, we just enjoyed these kids singing, I get down, you lift me up. And I was thinking about as I get older, it said, I've fallen and I can't get up. Well, change that song. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's good to have you here. Hope that you're all uh, not falling down. We'll help you back up, though, if you do. Hey, it's good to have you here in Skagit as well, joining us and those of you in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God. Uh, this week, um, a couple, bro three brothers, uh, the Landau brothers from New Jersey, kind of made the news. I don't know if you read this, but I found a very interesting story. Apparently, their mother passed away uh, six, seven years ago. And as they were finalizing her uh, you know, affairs and, and cleaning up the estate, they, they cleaned out her house and they decided to have a garage sale, uh, which is common. But there were some things that she had, some possessions that she had in her home that they didn't feel would be best at a garage sale, that maybe it was worthy of like an auction house or an auction barn and because they were a little more valuable. There was a, a set of china and some silver sets and, and some, some um, uh, paintings and such. And so they kept those actually in one of the brothers under his uh, ping pong table for about four years. And then they took them to an auction house. And, and uh, amongst the other things, one of them was this painting and the painting they remembered as kids was in their grandmother's house. And when she passed away, it went to their mom's house. And she hung it over their dining room table. And one of the brothers said he was always kind of creeped out about this painting that was at their dining room. So now it's been under this ping pong table for four years. And the guy at the auction house, he estimated that it would maybe fetch $250 to $800. It was an older painting, um, but it was, it was a real painting. And uh, there was some cracked varnish on it, and there was some paint that was missing, and don't expect a whole lot. So things went into auction. The, the silver actually got more than they expected. Some of the paintings, not so much. But this painting came up. And yes, it hit 250 and actually it hit $800. And within a few minutes, it hit $5,000. And then there became a bidding war, two guys on the phone, one in France and one in Germany. And by the time the bidding was done, this painting sold for $1.1 million dollars. Turns out that it's an original Rembrandt from circa 1624, and it's believed to be one of the early paintings that Rembrandt ever painted, maybe while he was in his teenage years. And the art community thought that it had been lost. In fact, the guy who bought it for $1.1 million turned around and sold it for $4 million. This is a fascinating story, but there was a little, little, little piece of the story that just kind of most people probably read right over, but to me was the reason I'm even telling you this. I mean, besides the fact that if you have paintings under your ping pong table, <laughs> don't give them away. So, but, but the thing that I thought was interesting was this, is that after, you know, these brothers were hoping to get $800. After the auction, when suddenly they've got, you know, a million dollars or better, 
They didn't find out about it for several days afterwards. Not because it was a secret, and not because the auction house didn't want to tell them, but because these brothers, the Landau brothers, are Jewish. And this auction happened during the time of Yom Kippur, the, the holiest day in the Jewish faith. And as is the custom with many Jewish people during that season, they avoid technology and they had turned their phones off. And I found this interesting because these individuals would be afraid of missing out on something that was so important. They would turn off their phones, they would unplug, they would disconnect because they were afraid of missing out on something that had been such an important part of their faith tradition for thousands of years. They didn't want to miss out on that. It was something that was so sacred, so holy, so impactful to them that they would, they would miss out on this so that they could not miss out on that. And I thought, this is a beautiful picture of the fear of missing out on the right things. And we started this series last week called FOMO, the fear of missing out. And what drives that in our lives is that there's this, this thing inside of us that we don't want to look back with regrets. We don't want to settle in life. We don't want to ultimately be disappointed. We're afraid that we might miss out on something. And so we arrange our lives, our activities, our schedules in such a way that we don't miss out. And in so doing, and here's the irony, in trying to get everything and not missing out, sometimes we miss out on really what matters. We talked about how, how we will ultimately end up with a life of disappointment if we go about this pursuing a life that is different than the one that we were designed, created, and appointed to live by God. Now, the Apostle Paul gives some sage words in the book of Ephesians, in this letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus, when he said, be very careful. Like, give attention to this. D don't let this one slip by. Be very attentive. Be very careful then how you live. Two options, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He says, you can live your life, and at the end of it, it could be an unwise life or it could be a wise life. So give special attention to this. Don't just drift on this one. But here's the tension for us in this whole idea of the, the fear of missing out. Because it says, making the most of every opportunity. And so, we might think, okay, then we've got we've to experience it all. We've got to get it all. We've got to know it all. We've got to do it all. And so we leverage every ounce of our being, our time, our schedules, our calendars, our focus, our energy, our efforts, our finances, our relationships, so that we can, can experience it all, so we can make the most of every opportunity. And as I said, in trying, in this fear of missing out, that suddenly we miss out on the things that we really should have gone after. And this is where I think it takes a great deal of discernment on our lives. Sometimes it's real obvious, but sometimes we need to discern. What are the things that we're willing to miss out on so that we don't miss out on the things that we really should have in our lives or that we should pursue in our lives? To have that discernment, that wisdom. Um, in, in this, uh, as we started this last week, there were some discussions that went around about this whole concept of FOMO, the fear of missing out. And Pastor Bill was having a discussion with a group of people, and one of the ladies in that group said that she had experienced JOMO. It's the joy of missing out. She said, when I finally got to the point where I realized I don't have to know everything, I don't have to experience everything, I don't have to own everything, I don't have to... She said, it was so freeing that I was in control of my life. These things weren't controlling what I did and all this stuff. So there was this joy of missing out. It's like, it's okay. I don't have to know. I don't have to experience. I don't have to have. I don't. There was a joy of missing out. Someone else talked about DOFO. 
That's the disappointment of finding out. That, that you, you think, well, if I had this experience, if I had this relationship, if I get out of this relationship, if I bought this thing, if I knew this stuff, that somehow it would give this lasting, wonderful, satisfying fulfillment in our life. But when I got to it, I was sorely disappointed that it was overpromised and underdelivered on this. And maybe it was because the price that I paid was greater than the return that I got. It was not commensurate that I sacrificed, that I gave up, and what I got in return, there was this disappointment and I missed out. And the truth is, is that sometimes that we can miss the important while pursuing the trivial. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life. And I think always that comes in hindsight. We look back and think, wow, boy, I, I gave up that or I missed that because I was going after this. Now, I'm not going to suggest that any of you have ever experienced this, but let me give you an example. 11.30 at night, you've been binge-watching... They've been binge-watching something on Netflix. You know it's late. You know you ought to go to bed. You know you have a big day tomorrow. It's 11.30 p.m., and you think, okay, 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 just one more season. <laughs> and you stay up all night watching, and then you look back and think, oh, I, 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 I forfeited sleep. That was more important so that I could watch this. Or you're the gaming, or you're surfing on the web, or you're, you're scrolling through the Facebook posts, or, or you got into YouTube, and they always suggest more videos, and you just keep going on and on, and you just waste it. Now listen, I don't want to say that any of you would ever experience that. <laughs> Let me use me as an example, and I'll say this right up front. I'm not a gamer. I, I don't have an Xbox or a Nintendo. The whole Candy Crush thing came and went. I never played it. I'm not a gamer, and I don't say that like, look at me, I'm so cool. I'm just not a gamer. The other thing is I'm not a binge watcher. I could not tell you the names of those boys on Strange Things, Stranger Things. I don't know their names. I, 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 haven't, I don't watch it. I know one kid has some teeth issues, but other than that, I don't know their names. I've never ever, and some of you are going to say, my, our, my pastor is so out of touch, so irrelevant. So be it. I've never ever watched an episode of Downton Abbey. I've never watched an episode of Breaking Bad. I've never watched an episode of Game of Thrones. I've never called Saul or the midwives. I just don't binge watch. And, and again, I don't say this as, look at me, because let me tell you what I have done. I have wasted countless hours. Yea, shall I say, hundreds of hours. If I were honest over the years, thousands of hours surfing through Facebook to see what you had for breakfast to see how your dog rolls around in the snow, to find out how to make a cake that looks like a Disney character. I've spent thousands of hours on this stupid Facebook thing, and I look back on it and I think, what if, what if I could have those hours back? What if I would have used those? Think about the books I could have read if I would have channeled those hours or the literature, the leadership material, the history books, the theology I could have been immersing myself in. If I had those thousands of hours, if I could have put those into a hobby or an interest that would just enhance my life, by now I would probably be able to play the harp. I, I, could, I could speak fluent Mandarin Chinese. I would have had the whole Pentateuch memorized. I had my earned doctorate and be able to ride a unicycle. But no, I know what you had for breakfast. <laughs> and the whole deal is that, that in pursuing this trivial stuff, I miss out on some important things. Now listen, I'm not anti-Facebook. I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-Netflix. That, that's not what this is about. In fact, I'm grateful for technology. I just think it's a double-edged sword. I'm grateful that you can 
read the Word of God in multiple translations and even multiple languages and hear and read some of the greatest thinkers on Scripture who give commentaries on your phone anywhere 24-7. I am grateful for that. I, honestly, I'm grateful that we have people like, well, I don't know if they're people, but Siri and Alexa to do all of our work for us. Man, if they would have been around when I was writing papers, how easy life would have been. I'm glad that at our fingertips, we have more information that can be, than can be contained in entire libraries or the Smithsonian. It's right there for us constantly, 24-7. I'm thankful that, that we have all of these luxuries. I mean, it's amazing that you can sit in a waiting room at the doctor's office and on your phone monitor not only your heart rate and your, your cholesterol, but your financial portfolio and the security system in your home, and your dog at the doggy daycare. You can just sit there and see it all on your phone, but it's a double-edged sword because this being connected all the time, 24-7, can take its toll as well. And maybe, and often, being connected leaves us more disconnected. That having this connection to all this information, all this stuff, can possibly disconnect us from really what should be, what matters. A woman named uh, Brandy Johnson wrote this. She's a mother of twin boys, and she decided to conduct a little experiment. She took an hour one morning to unplug and simply watch her boys play. She also decided to keep score. If the boys ever looked over to see if she was watching them, she'd make a little mark on a piece of paper. At the end of the hour, after watching her two young boys play, she ended up with 28 marks, and this is what she wrote. As I sat quietly in the corner of the room, I tallied how many times they looked at me for various reasons. To see if I saw their cool tricks, to seek my approval, or my disapproval for what they were doing, to watch my reaction. I couldn't help but wonder, if I was on some sort of technology, what message would I have been sending? 28 times, my angels would have wondered if the World Wide Web was more important than them. 28 times, my boys would have not received the attention most adults are searching for. 28 times, my loves would have questioned if they were alone, emo alone emotionally. 28 times, my kids would have been reassured that who you are online is what really matters. Now again, I'm not here to preach against technology. But I just think sometimes in pursuing things that are trivial, we miss out on what's most important. Let me just ask you a question. Do not answer just for your consideration on this line. Does your day start first thing and end last thing with your phone? And I'll put a little side one on that. Do you check your phone before you go to the bathroom in the morning? Have you ever gotten out of bed in the middle of the night to check a text, an email, or a Facebook post? Have you ever had a family member complain about the amount of time you spend with a screen? Have you ever been bummed that you didn't bring the phone to the bathroom with you? Have you ever been checking posting, tweeting, or texting, all the while pretending to be engaged? Have you ever checked your phone during an important meeting, a meaningful conversation, 
a family dinner, a date, a wedding, a funeral, this sermon. <laughs> See, we're so connected all the time that it causes us to be disconnected. And today what I want us to do is I want us to look at, a, at an experience and, and a time that Jesus had with his disciples. Now granted, they didn't have phones and tablets and computers and all this connection, but I think the principle that we will see in here applies directly to us in this matter. And, and we're going to be looking at, a, at an event that took place in Mark chapter 6. So if you do have a Bible or a phone or a tablet and you want to follow along, Mark chapter 6. And let me give you a little background as we, as we get there. This is one of those instances where I believe you see the humanity of Jesus. We always talk about the divinity of Jesus, that he is God, that he's the creator, that he's eternal, and that he's infinite, and that's all true. But sometimes his divinity overshadows the fact that he was completely human, that he made himself nothing, taking on the, the nature of a man, the form of a man and the nature of a servant, that he became, self-imposed himself to become one of us, to be human, and in this instance, we see the humanity of Jesus where I believe he's tired, I believe he's drained, I believe he's exhausted and just spent as a human being. And it's not just physically, I think that's part of it, but there's some things that have been happening. Just prior to what we're going to be looking at, Jesus went back to his hometown, back to Nazareth with his 12 disciples. Now remember, he's in his early 30s. He goes back home to where the people know him, the people he grew up with. This is a small village. It's not like he's just a face in the crowd. They know him. Jesus is back in town, and he brings these 12 guys with him. You know that the whole town was aware of this. On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue, and he teaches, and some of the people in his hometown are amazed at his teaching. Others in his hometown are offended, and in Mark, it's almost implied that some of those who are offended at him are his own family, his brothers, his sisters. Like, who does this guy think he is? And this is where Jesus would say, a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. So even though he's firm in his identity of who he is, there had to have been this emotional sting that I'm rejected by some of the people in my own hometown, some of the people in my own flesh and blood family. So he's got that, and, and, and it had to have taken a little bit of a toll. Right on the heels of that, his cousin John, and, and my belief, my strong belief is, though there's no biblical proof of it, my strong belief is that he and John grew up together. John, John the Baptist was his cousin, was six months older than Jesus. Their moms, Mary and Elizabeth, they were friends. So to me, there's, like, there's just no way that at family gatherings they wouldn't have grown up together. When they all went to the temple, they wouldn't have been together. So these guys had grown up together. On top of that, though maybe now they haven't seen each other in their 20s, that when Jesus started his ministry, it was John who was the first one to recognize him as the Messiah. John looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was John who baptized him. Very important connection in their spiritual journey. And Jesus looks at John and he says about him, Of those born amongst women, which is all of us and every human, none is greater than John the Baptist. Well, right after this thing happened in Nazareth, John the Baptist, his cousin, who's been a big part of his life, gets beheaded by Herod. And while, yes, Jesus has the eternal perspective, but get all that, there was probably this, this toll of the injustice and the evil of this broken world. And John the Baptist, whom he'd grown up with, who'd been a part of the start of his ministry, 
who God anointed, this man of God, this prophet from God, has been killed. And there's this heaviness. And then it says he sends his 12 disciples out, two by two. So he sends out six groups of these disciples. And while I think part of that is to give them some real-time experience in leadership, in teaching, in advancing the kingdom of God, of what he would turn the whole thing over to them so that they can go out and, and spread this good news of the gospel, they can go and, and, and bring you know, the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, he sends them out. I think maybe it's possible that while he wants them to get that experience, there's a part of him that's like, you know, I've been just pouring into these guys. And I need to not give for a while. I, I just need some time. Now, some of this is speculation on my part. But you read the preliminary stuff leading up to this event, and you begin to see that the humanity of Jesus may have just been spent. So they all go off. And this is where we pick up in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And it says this. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now you can imagine, they're coming back. And they can't believe it. They've been out in these areas and they've been teaching for the first time and they've been healing and God's been working through them and they've been talking about the kingdom of God and telling people to repent and, and follow Jesus and, and they've been casting out unclean spirits. You know they come back and they are just fired up. It's like, why would we have ever been fishermen? This is amazing what God is doing through us. I can imagine, again, this is just imagination on my part. I can imagine those guys who never get speaking parts in the Bible, like Thaddeus and Bartholomew, they're like talking like crazy. Jesus, Jesus, got to tell. I preached. Okay, now, granted, I used most of that Sermon on the Mount stuff you did because that was really good, but, but I used my own illustrations, and it really it was, it was amazing, and they listened, and they're following you now. It's amazing stuff, and others come in and say, man, I, I prayed for someone, and, and they got healed. I mean, like, they can see now. It was amazing, and, and they're just jacked. You know that after these experiences that they come back not only just fired up, they're maybe intoxicated with this kingdom fruit that they're bearing. And because it's not just Jesus now, it's his disciples, and they've gone out. People are hearing about it. They're coming to find this man, Jesus, and there's this upswell in popularity. So much of so, it says, that then because so many people were coming and going, that they, Jesus and the disciples, did not even have a chance to eat. There are people just flocking, literally thousands and thousands of people. There's so much stuff going on. There's so many needs. There's so much to be taught. And it's like the disciples are saying, Jesus, we, we got to ride this wave. I mean, you know in, in business, you know in sports, you know in any organization, when you have momentum going, the thing you want to do is just leverage that. Lean into it. Don't let it die. And as all this is happening, it's nonstop. They can't even eat. I can imagine Peter saying, eat. Who needs to eat? We'll eat when we get to heaven. Let's go. Let's keep this stuff going. Because they're just gripped by this. You know, early in my ministry, when I was young, I was just out of college, I remember hearing on two or three different occasions, pastors say things like this. I'd rather burn out than rust out. And, and it sounded so noble, like Give your life to the kingdom of God. Don't sit around and waste away. The problem is, over the last 35 years, I saw some of them burn out. I saw some of them burn out physically. I saw my dad burn out emotionally. I've seen some of them burn out spiritually and walk away from the faith. 
We've all heard stories of them burning out ethically and morally and leaving a wake of just destruction, confusion, pain, and hurt. So yeah, but yeah, God can restore. Yeah, 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 that's all true, but does that have to be the case? I mean, is that our only two options, rust out or burn out? Is that it? And I think maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus sees that this could be what these disciples could be susceptible of, that they are not only invigorated by this kingdom fruit that, does, that God is producing in them, that suddenly they get addicted to it, they get intoxicated by it. And so in the midst of all this that's going on, maybe even Peter's saying, hey, Jesus, let me quote you. Look out under the fields. They're ripe and wide under the harvest. There's so much going on. we got to keep going. In the midst of all of this, Jesus makes this unbelievable statement. And he says this to them. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Come with me. And when Jesus appointed the 12 originally, when he says, you're going to be one of my disciples, it says he appointed the 12 that they could be with him. And he says, guys, let's go back to where we started. You just need some Jesus time. Come with me. And you know what? I know people are thinking you're great. They love your sermon. You're healing them. They're, they're, you're, they're your fans. They're following you. It's great. You come by yourself. You don't get to bring friends on this one. You don't get to bring your following. Come with me by yourself. Leave the crowd behind. Leave all the people behind. Come with me by yourself to a quiet place where there's no noise, where all the clamor and all the activity ceases. And get some rest. Like, guys, we, we need to take a time out. Guys, we're going to take a nap. And I think what Jesus knows is that they need rest physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. And while there's so many opportunities ahead, he says, yeah, that's all good. But don't get sucked into that and miss out on something more important. And I love this, verse 32. He says, come with me. So they went. By yourselves, away by themselves. To a quiet place in a boat and get some rest in a solitary place. And I think maybe you could argue by necessity or availability they used the boat. But I think there was intentionality on Jesus' part. Because he knew that for most of them, there was just something about being on the water. Most of them had spent their whole life on the water. To get them on a boat, to get there out several hundred yards off of shore, to hear the waves lapping on the hull, the wind flapping the sail, the cool breeze, the smell of fresh air. It was just something for them about being on that boat. Not to fish, Let's just go be on that boat. Come on, guys. And I think what Jesus knows is that he needs something, and they need something, and that is with all that's been going on, they need to make sure that they take care of their soul. And Jesus always gave attention to the soul. Like with everything that's going on, 
all the popularity, all the lessons, all the miracles, all of this ministry, you need to take care of your soul. And I wonder, again, this is totally biblical speculation on my part. I wonder if they get 300 yards off of the shore. And Jesus says, hey guys, hold on a second. Bring the oars in. Let, let the sail down. They're out in the water. And I wonder if Jesus says, hey guys, just, just for a minute. Just, just close your eyes. And take this in. Feel the warmth of the sun on your skin. Feel that cool breeze blowing through your hair. Listen to those waves lapping on the, on the hull of the boat. Smell that fresh air. Just, just keep your eyes closed. And I wonder if Jesus would, in that moment, just say, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And he says, guys, you remember I told you I'm the good shepherd? I am your shepherd. You don't need the accolades of the crowd. You don't need the applause of others. It's who you are in me. It's not just about what you can accomplish and what you achieve. I want you to just realize that all that you need is found in me. And today... I'm going to make you lie down in a green pasture because we're here on the quiet waters because we need to restore our souls. And I wonder if Jesus says, quoting himself, guys, remember when I said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what I want for you right now. I don't want you to get drawn in to everything else that's going on and miss out on what's really important here. So they continue on, and What's kind of reassuring to me is that even the best laid plans don't always work out like you'd hoped. (laughs) Verse 33, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. What was supposed to be a quiet retreat turns out to be a festival. Now there's thousands of people. They're like, yeah, we knew you were coming here. We were waiting for you. We're ready. Here we are. And this is where Jesus feeds the 5,000, that whole deal. So they feed the 5,000, and, you know, it'd be real easy to say, well, you know, we, we tried. At least we had a few minutes out there on the lake. Come on, guys. we got to power through this. Crack a Red Bull. Let's keep going. Just caffeinate yourself. We'll just keep, keep going. Keep going. Jesus doesn't do that. He gets done with this incredible thing, feeding of the 5,000. And then later in verse 46, it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Why does he have to make them? I think because they don't want to miss out. 
Well, this is all great. I, I don't want to. I don't want to miss out on another teaching that Jesus might do, another miracle that maybe He'll put me in, and I can teach again to this crowd. I've never taught to one this big. And, and He says, "No, no, no. You need to leave. You need to go." And He makes them go. And I think He's also astute enough to know that if they go without Him, the crowds aren't going to follow them. Now they have started on this thing, but really Jesus is the main attraction. So away they go so that they can restore their soul. And Jesus stays there and somehow dismisses the crowd, sends them on home. And then Jesus himself recognizes, I need this as well. Verse 46, after leaving them, he, Jesus, went up on a mountainside to pray. Now I mentioned a couple weeks ago that prayer is going to be just a major emphasis for us this year. And I, I cannot wait in about Mm. eight weeks I'm going to be preaching on this passage and we're starting a series in three weeks on pray first we're going to be talking about this I cannot wait to preach this and so I'm not going to talk a lot about this but Jesus goes up on this mountainside and you could argue but Jesus there's more people to be healed there's more people to be preached to there's more miracles to do there, there's more kingdom work to do and while that's all true what we see with Jesus is that he absolutely refuses refuses to neglect his soul, refuses to sacrifice his connection with his heavenly father, refuses to get sucked in by this fear of missing out and truly miss out on what's most important, this relationship and connection with the father. This isn't the only time this happens. Luke records this. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to him to, to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. This is all good stuff. People are... They're crowding in to hear about the kingdom of God. They're crowding in to have him, him minister to them. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Away from the crowd. Away from all the need. Away from even the fruit of the ministry. Because he refused to neglect his soul and to sacrifice his connection with the Heavenly Father. Here's an interesting little side note that, that John is the only one that includes this. Maybe you've missed this. When John records this whole thing of the feeding of the 5,000, John says, Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. Like they're going to grab him and say, you're not getting away this time, Jesus. We're going to Jerusalem. We got a crown for you. We're taking over. And Jesus knows this is what they're going to do. So he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Maybe the human side of Jesus realized that this kind of temptation could cause him to wander and that the timing wasn't right, but if he stuck around them long enough, if he heard the press long enough, if he believed what they were saying enough, that maybe he would be swayed. So he has the wherewithal to say, you know what, I need to get away. I need to recalibrate. I need to get back onto new, true north. I need to refocus. I need to get a perspective so that the applause of my heavenly father is louder than the applause of the people. The desire to please my heavenly father outshines the desire to please these who are clamoring for me to be their king. That I can just get away and not neglect my soul. 
and not miss out on connection with my Father. Last week I talked about this phrase, this statement, this paragraph that Jesus said, and it's recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of the uh, profound pieces of it says this, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And John Ortberg talks about how he always read this and, and thought of this as, you know, what good is it to be successful in your business, to have all the sex you ever want and every sensual pleasure and, and all of the things that this world can have and then end up in hell? And, and some of us have heard it that way. Some of us have taught it that way. Some of us have believed it that way. So John says, you know, I always thought this was talking about ending up in hell. And in a conversation with Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard says to Ortberg, no, that's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. Willard says, what Jesus is talking about here is not a destination, hell. That's not what he's talking about. It's a diagnosis of the soul. Another way of putting this is that this whole idea of gaining the whole world and losing your soul is not talking about a judgment from God as a punishment for the way a life is lived. What it's talking about is a condition that is a result of the way a life is lived. That our soul, if we live this way, will shrink, will shrivel up, will be suffocated, will, will, will die, this dried up soul. That what Jesus is saying is, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. And what good is it to go after all these things and neglect your soul? What good is it to achieve all this and never have this connection with your heavenly Father? You, you think you're going to miss out on all this, and what you miss out on what most is the essence of who you are and were created to be. You know, when Jesus said those famous words in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's not just talking about eternal life somewhere in heaven. He's talking about internal life of who we are in our soul. Not just the eternal life, but the internal life of being transformed, of having our souls be alive and breathing. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. You know, throughout church history, there have been um, spiritual disciplines that have been followed. And, and sometimes some are emphasized more than others. There are some spiritual disciplines that years ago, centuries ago, were very common but are not talked about as much now. I mean, you can still read about them if you read uh, Spirit of the Disciplines uh, by Dallas Willard or Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, or even The, the Life You've Always Wanted by um, John Orberg. You read about them, but they're not emphasized enough. And some of the early church fathers, especially like monks and priests, would take a vow. So it wasn't just a spiritual discipline. It was a vow. It was a lifestyle. Things like Simplicity, solitude, silence. Because they knew that in this world, it's so easy for our lives, our worlds, our schedules, our minds, our hearts, our souls to get so cluttered. So we simplify. And we get alone. And we be quiet. Blaise Pascal was a famous uh, French mathematician, philosopher, and theologian, he said this, 
I have discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they are unable to stay quietly in their own room. But just got to keep going. Got so much. Got to fill it up. Gotta, don't want to miss it out. And as a result, we miss out. Maybe a good place to start is just meditating on a part of a verse, like, like Psalm 46. It says, be still and know that I am God. To maybe just spend some time with that. And let me tell you how the average American would meditate on this verse. Okay, be still know that I'm God. Be still know that I'm God. Be still know that I'm God. Got it. What's next? To which I think God would say, okay, maybe that was a little too much. Let's try this. Be still know that I am. Okay, I see what you did there. Don't have to use the word God because it's a play on words. I am, you're the great I am. I am that I am. yod hey vav hey the Tetragrammaton. I get that. I see what you did there. That's a clever one. God says, okay, well, we we'll better try a little bit less. Be still and know. Well, okay, now wait a second. That, that's not fair. Know what? I mean, you got to tell me what I'm knowing. That's like asking a question, why? Why what? You, know, you can't just, okay, okay, well, slow down. How about this one? Be still. And maybe God just says, you know, you have RLS, restless life syndrome. Just, just got to be still. He's you know, like, well, I'm trying, but I can't help it. I'm just all fidgety all the time. Okay, how about this one? B, let's start there. Because remember, you are a human being, not a human doing. So maybe we start with just a word. Just be. Because who you are is far more important than what you achieve and what you do and what you accomplish. So just be. And when you get that one down, then learn just to be still. You know, when the Eagles came back together and they, they put out the album, Hell Freezes Over, they had this song. It never got big, but I love it. The song was called Learn to Be Still. Just, just be still. And when you get that, be still and know. Know what really matters. Well, know what's most important. Know what's going to last. Know what's significant. Know what's eternal. Know what you really should fear missing out on. And be still and know that I am. That I'm able to handle whatever you're so frantic about. That I am bigger. That I am sovereign. That I am capable that I'm enough, that I'm holy, that I'm just, that I'm merciful, and I'm gracious, and know that I am God, your heavenly Father, who fears that you will miss out on the life that you were designed, created, and appointed to live. Be still and know that I am God. Refuse to neglect your soul. Refuse to sacrifice a connection with your loving Heavenly Father. And it's amazing with a guy like Moses, for instance, spent the first 40 years of his life in just this, I mean, after the Nile River thing, in, in Pharaoh's, you know, household and just all this frenetic activity. And then when he runs, he spends the next 40 years in simplicity, in solitude, a lot of time of silence. He's working for his father-in-law, Jethro, taking care of his herds out in the Median desert, finds himself on the backside of the Mount of Horeb, 
the, the, the mountain of God. And one day, he's probably been there many times, one day there's this, there's this bush. It's different. It's, it's, on, it's on fire. But it's not consumed. And I love how the New American Standard Version puts this. It says, then Moses said, I must turn aside. I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight. Yeah, there's things to do. Yeah, there's a flock I need to know about. Yeah, I got to do all. Yeah, I must turn aside. I must disconnect from all this to see what God really has for me in this moment. I must unplug from all of my activities. I must turn aside. And maybe for us, in our world where we try to fill our lives so that we don't miss out, the question that we need to ask is, will I turn aside? Will I unplug? Will I disconnect? Will I refuse to neglect my soul? Will I refuse to sacrifice a connection with my Heavenly Father. So let's go back to this verse one more time. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. How great it would be for each one of us to spend some time with this invitation from Jesus and maybe personalize it. Maybe put your first name here and make this singular. So it reads like this. Bob, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. Kaylee, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. Alan, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. Cherry, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. What if we heard Jesus inviting us to just disconnect so that we can connect to what's most important, so that we can unplug, so that our souls can flourish and thrive? What does it profit? to know everything on Facebook, to binge watch everything on Netflix, to fill our schedule with no margin at all, and forfeit our soul. So the challenge is this. Will you this week not take a, <laughs> a vow of solitude and simplicity and silence? Would you take a moment each day to just hear Jesus invite you? Come on. Let's find rest for your soul. Let's flourish. Let fresh air of the Spirit breathe into you and bring you alive. Come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. So I challenge you with that so you don't miss out on what's most important. Hey, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to close with a song. Great hymn of the faith. The second verse is, if you've never heard this, even if you have heard it, the second verse is a little odd. There's some weird words and some weird, don't, don't let it throw you. At the end of it, it gets to this point where the words say this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. That in our world, when we are so afraid of missing out, we wander from what's most important. Let's sing this, and then I'll close this in prayer.